Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at The Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sensible way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. Okay, Will, we got to start off this episode by talking about this intrepid female reporter and whistleblower, depending on who you ask, named Ivory Hecker, apparently. Which is a real heck of a name. I'm not entirely convinced this is her real name. If it is, it's one of the greatest names out there. It's like, okay, we want like kind of a cool sounding name, but it also has to be a little down home. We're in Texas, you know. It's even better than Johnny Lee Swagger. The I think that's the name of the Mark Wahlberg character in the movie Shooter. He should have been named Ivory Hecker. It's so much cooler. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about Ivory Hecker, I cannot say the name without having a dramatic pause first, and why MAGA Internet is all abuzz about this journalist. Yeah, okay, so, you know, this is a James O'Keefe situation. The prankster prince himself, Project Veritas, he's back. And I gotta say, you know, James O'Keefe, I think he's done a lot of uh, bad things, and, and he's not a good guy. But I gotta hand it to him here on The Showmanship. So this, this yes, Ivory Hecker is a reporter at a, lo- a local Fox station, uh, Fox-owned as well, which becomes relevant, in Houston, uh, my hometown. And I believe yesterday she was doing this segment that was supposed to be basically about how no one can get their AC repaired because of these shortages and it's so hot in Houston. And so a pretty, you know, kind of banal local news segment. And they toss it to her and she's got like a real sweaty repairman behind her. And then she goes, yeah, first I'd like to reveal that uh, this station has been censoring me and I'm going to Project Veritas and I've been wearing a wire and, you know, uh, the truth will be revealed. And I highly yeah, so we'll- encourage our listeners to actually watch this online because it's it's great. It takes place in like an alley or something. Yeah, it's an alley and you have this repairman just toiling in the back who's presumably not aware at all what's going on. And 
What later becomes clear is that there's a Project Veritas guy right off camera who's going to interview her once that's once the actual TV segment's over. And so this was really a you know a really set up thing. They've got kind of like a top James O'Keefe lieutenant uh, ready to rock. And so I mean, and she also does it in this like local TV news banter, like th- this patter way where it's like. Uh, coming up tonight, I've been wearing a wire inside the station. You almost read it as just another local news thing, but obviously it's a little crazier than that. I don't understand speech coaches in this form of TV journalism, but both in local and national news, they teach you, particularly if you are a woman, to talk as though you are not an actual human being. It's so weird, like the cadence they try to get you to employ. It's even weirder when she employs that cadence in the service of Project Veritas, just completely punking her viewers. Because And, and also, uh, our Daily Beast colleague Max Tani made this point, but at some point you gotta respect, even if begrudgingly, that she pivoted immediately from this Project Veritas pivot and reveal to immediately going back to doing her segment in the alley with this guy. <laughs> like right. I mean it's pretty it's pretty crazy. So so actually we've got the the full segment and I mean it, it'll be out by the time the episode airs. So here's why, you know, the station was censoring her. Basically, they would not let her talk constantly about hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> Like recently or last year? You know, it's unclear when she was getting this audio. I mean, Houston is also home to the famous demon sperm doctor. Of course. Who was posting hydroxychloroquine. And it seems like Ivory Hecker was somehow kind of like very into what she was pushing and was sort of like, why won't you let me put this lady on or some other hydroxychloroquine person. Um, She also really wanted to do a segment about Bitcoin. Uh, and, And so, I mean, you have these like these interviews with the station management who are just like, stop talking about hydroxychloroquine. You know, and then at some point she she goes, hmm, I'm going to James O'Keefe with this. Uh, just as you were talking, Will, and just as we were recording this episode, Matt Gates retweets about Ivory Hecker. This thing's got legs. Rick Grinnell, who was obviously uh, one of Donald Trump's former intel chiefs during the Trump administration, uh, was tweeting about her regularly. This is something that at least for this moment in time has the uh, legs of uh, Republican internet celebrity. Who knows how long she'll be able to juice this. Oh, yeah. I mean, she'll definitely go to Newsmax. Well, first of all, is she even still at her Fox affiliate job right now? Like, how long can you hold a job like that after doing going rogue like this on air? Right. I don't think they let you stay on much after that. I mean, but right. I mean, the, the end of this Project Veritas segment goes, James O'Keefe is like, Ivory Hecker is now an independent journalist uh, looking for, you know, to work for an honest outlet. So, you know, I mean, OAN, I think, has some openings now. But really, I mean, it, when you sort of boil it down, like everyone's getting very hyped about what this audio is going to be. But, but you know, we now know what it is. It's just about Fox News, right? I mean, this is the parent company of Fox News. And it essentially argues that they're in the pocket of big vaccine. So, you know, I, I, I think maybe this sort of does boil down to just some local, local newsroom drama. Whatever people do this, like when places like Project Veritas or other right-wing organizations are trying to blow the lid off of the liberalism, which, you know, is hilarious to even posit, of places like Fox News, and they try to get at it by looking at Fox affiliates, like in Houston or somewhere in Oklahoma or whatever. It never makes sense. Are they just intentionally obtuse to the way how local news actually works? I don't 
think Fox News has that much to do with the Houston Fox affiliate. <laughs> I mean, I think they're kind of obtuse, deliberately obtuse about how a lot of things work, right? I mean, they Fair, get like, yes. like the person who runs the office supplies at the Washington Post. And then they're like, this person's the newsroom manager, you know, and that kind of stuff. I mean, in this case, I got to say, I, I've had a little experience myself, uh, you know, I had about uh, with, with local uh, TV news. And they are such crazy places. And people there are just so ruthless about going after the audience. It's kind of ridiculous to me that that this is not more damning but there you go i mean you, still you got to hand it to o'keefe on the spectacle on this one i mean it's awesome tv yes it's fantastic tv yes it's great content okay as some of our listeners are probably aware there is this new report out of the federal bureau of investigation that has to do with one of our big bugaboos QAnon. the infamous q <laughs> will our resident QAnon expert and correspondent, can you please dig into what this means and why this is different from some of the other FBI memos that have come out in recent years or months about the QAnon phenomenon? Right. So, you know, Q, obviously, you know, I'm paying a lot of attention to QAnon, writing a book uh, for HarperCollins about QAnon. Shameless plug, man. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is interesting because, you know, for a while, actually, it has felt like the FBI for years was sort of ignoring QAnon or not doing a heck of a lot about it. I mean, there was like literally an uh, interstate QAnon kidnapping gang. And people were like, please, FBI, pay attention to this. And they're like, eh, I don't know. And so now we get the Congress asked the FBI for a report on what's going on with QAnon. The assessment is is not ideal for, for those of us who um, are do not want, you know, QAnon uh, to get even crazier. But basically, the FBI says that, uh, you know, what a lot of QAnon experts have been predicting, which is QAnon was in, in some ways sort of a promoted complacency in a way because it said, you know, don't worry, there's this plan, right? I mean, people are eating kids like, you know, Satan runs the world. But Donald Trump and the deep, you know, and the the military have this plan, and you're kind of just watching a movie. They would say, like, eat and get some popcorn and enjoy the show. But now that Trump's out of office, and we're seeing people lose their faith in the plan, it's not that they're necessarily being de-radicalized and are you know going back to you know normal activities. Instead, it seems like people are like, we are the plan. You know, we have to take action ourselves. And and the FBI assessment is that this could lead to a future QAnon violence. Right, and as we've talked about before, with these types of movements. De-radicalization almost never happens when the reality doesn't end up matching the lore or the religion or the uh, rancid ideology. Oftentimes, it just acts as an accelerant as to, okay, time to get more extreme because the QAnon philosophy or the extremist right-wing philosophies that sort of run parallel to it cannot fail. They can only be failed. That is the only scenario that is acceptable when you get to a point where Donald Trump doesn't actually put all the pedophiles in America in Guantanamo Bay. Right. I mean, you know, we saw after January 6th and after especially the inauguration, we saw a little bit of, of people leaving QAnon. But but in practice, I, I think a lot of people just said, um, oh, man, it turns out the deep state is way more powerful than even our buddy Q believed. And they they took Q offline. And now we have to do stuff ourselves. I mean, when I was at QCon, they were saying, oh, you know, um, you are the plan, right? <laughs> Which is you, a you, as in, you as in Will Summer. You, no, yes, right, right. No, it, you as in the, the average QAnon believer. Um, oh, okay. Damn it. And so, I mean, it really is the this QAnon violence. I mean, obviously people saw it um, on January 6th and the guys with the, – they couldn't have made it clear, right? They had big Q shirts and they were beating up cops and all this kind of stuff. That could have meant anything. 
Right, exactly. But often QAnon violence is just so weird because QAnon is so weird that it isn't instantly clear to the public or people go, huh, well, you know, whatever. But it's going on, right? And so this FBI assessment lays out a couple instances of QAnon violence. One that didn't make it I thought was interesting was relatively recently, a couple months ago, a woman was charged with trying to burn down her house with her kids in it. uh, And she claimed she was saving them from child sex trafficking. uh, And, you know, her relatives said she was extremely into QAnon. So, I mean, these are these kind of weird incidents, these isolated incidents. But there was one in particular uh, in the FBI report that struck out to me, which was the tale of this uh, train derailment in Los Angeles. Swin, do you remember this uh, case? Vaguely, vaguely. The Eduardo Moreno guy? Yeah, yeah. So you have a, this is a case where um, it was like kind of at the height of the, the first stage of the pandemic. It was about a, maybe a couple weeks in. One of these hospital ships had been sent to Los Angeles. And this guy who was, who was driving a train at the port, like a cargo train, just derails the train almost in an attempt to like hit the ship or something. I mean, I, I don't, you can't really like do that with a train. Like I, I've seen that, uh, that movie about the train derailment, but um, yeah, I mean, he, he basically his attempt, you know, QAnon people thought this was, uh, you know, a, a cover for like kind of nefarious activities or, or rescuing mole children and this kind of stuff. So, I mean, these are these weird, you know, little sort of QAnon incidents that, that, that play out in really bizarre ways. How successful was the trail derailment exactly in this situation? <laughs> I, I feel like I should have read about this more because I'm picturing something cinematic right now. Did, did it turn out to be a little bit uh, more anticlimactic than that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you just got it to sort of, you know, like skip the tracks perhaps or or uh, yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. He, he, he got a couple things derailed. Like I, I, I believe a couple were de- cars were derailed. I'm not a train expert here. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, so, so these are these, these kind of QAnon incidents and, and obviously the, the FBI report kind of paints a grim picture of, uh, the fact that QAnon has not, uh, dissolved, you know, the LA times had a column recently that said QAnon's over. Don't worry anybody, you know, it's done. But I think this FBI report makes clear that's not the case and, and that it's, you know, it, the FBI also assesses that they're kind of radicalizing in, in weird little ways that are kind of going off down their own rabbit holes. Right. The evidence is actually scanned for QAnon itself, like QAnon proper, let's call it for actually dying out. And you can attest to that far better than I can in terms of all of the reporting you've been doing over the past few months. But even not counting that, there are all kinds of offshoots and evolutions that these things constantly take on, where to try to discount it and declare it dead, long before the corpse even arrives, is just weird to me. That That's like... Uh, trying to say that, oh, as of 2016 or 2017, Pizzagate is dead. It never died. Right. It just becomes a new weird thing. Right, exactly. And and this is something I think you've actually written about before, where the Pizzagate morons and extremists largely morphed into QAnon stuff. Is that correct? Or am I simplifying it? Right, right. That's exactly it. I mean, basically, uh, you know, QAnon was doing its its thing after Pizzagate, which was a little different. And then suddenly Pizzagate kind of latches on and then QAnon becomes all about like satanic cabals and that kind of stuff. Right. It's the same story. It's the same narrative. <laughs> it's Right. And so, you know, what weird thing is next? I don't know, but it's going to be weird. Okay, now on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Daily Beast reporter Kelly Weil, who has been doing some reporting on what's going on with uh, notorious far-right activist Eamon Bundy out west. Uh, Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So obviously, Eamon Bundy, people know from the Bundy family, uh, you know, famous standoffs with the government. What is he doing now? My understanding is he's prepping a run for governor. 
That's right. He's prepping a run for Idaho governor to the dismay of the Idaho Republican Party, which really does not want that affiliation. This is after a year of de facto campaigning. He's building this organization called the People's Rights Movement. It uh, is built so that it can mobilize for whatever grievance it has, be that masking or uh, harassing judges involved in Emma Bundy's various criminal cases. So he has a network and now he has an official gubernatorial campaign. You know, one thing I, I noticed here is that, you know, there's an irony here, which is I believe he's banned from the state house. So, you know, he cannot run or he's running for governor, but like, you know, he legally can't enter the Capitol. Is that right? That's right. I think his ban is up sometime in maybe August. It's uh, related to the last time he broke into the Capitol with a group of people, kind of a foreshadowing of the January 6th Capitol attack in Washington. But right now he's not legally allowed to enter the building that he would, uh, you know, sort of preside over. So that's, you know, a little hiccup that happened. <laughs> sure, sure. So there's a larger thing at play, right? Which is this whole, like, he has this movement and he's, they're kind of just getting up to a lot of, like, far-right activism around the the Northwest. I mean, what is the, what is the larger thing going on there and how is that interacting with the local GOP? So the People's Rights Movement is kind of an outgrowth of this sort of anti-government tendency that the Bundys have um, made their name for for years. The People's Rights Movement, the website was actually registered before the pandemic, but it really got its start in early pandemic days, like March 2020. People deciding exactly how angry they were going to be about masking and social distancing. And once those grievances caught some momentum, this group started organizing like mask burnings or calculated arrests or by the summer storming government buildings. They're mobilized in a way that they can have little pop-up protests here and there. And increasingly, they've been having protests at people's houses. And these aren't like, you know, the governor who they have protested at his house. And you can say that you shouldn't even protest at the governor's house, but these are small time figures. We're talking county commissioners who they don't like their COVID measures. We're talking a judge who's involved in one of Bundy's criminal cases. And they're just going outside these people's houses with megaphones and blasting clips from the Scarface movie. Which clips from the Scarface movie? Also, <laughs> is this the Paul Muni Scarface or the Al Pacino Scarface? I did not know there were two of them, and I've seen neither, so um, not not qualified to weigh in there. But yeah, they. Um, so this is obviously something really annoying to the local GOP. They don't want this uh, association with them, and some local Republican politicians have even received this treatment. One guy sponsored a uh, bipartisan bill saying you have to stop protesting outside people's houses. And they went and they protested outside his house. So <laughs> it's not necessarily friendly relations with the party that he's uh, running to represent. So Kelly, uh, you've been covering Eamon Bundy and the Bundy Ranch types for going on. Oh God, at this point, is it like half a decade, maybe more? Is that right? Yeah, unfortunately, I think so. <laughs> so in the rich tapestry of post-Trump or, well, not really post-Trump, but post-Trump presidency, Republican politics and conservative grassroots movementarians. Where do you put Eamon Bundy on the spectrum right now? There are things that he does that almost seem, I don't know if this is the right word or trivializing it too much, but almost quaint 
to me compared to all of the other stuff that has emerged, especially in the past two years. So Bundy has a kind of right-wing populist ethos, right? He does a lot of things that don't necessarily align with things that we think of as obviously far right. He's not one of those types that was marching at Charlottesville. What he's doing is a lot more tied into the land use battles of the past, the sagebrush rebellions. Basically, he comes out of this tendency that says, we, the ranchers, should be able to use government lands as we want, you know, graze our cattle on on public lands, you know, kind of a don't tread on me, uh, don't interfere with my livelihood kind of mentality. And that, I think, actually resonates with a lot more Americans than, you know, kind of blood and soil nationalism. But he takes that sort of kernel of a message that does resonate with some people and expands it out saying, you know, we shouldn't have to follow these health edicts. We shouldn't have to, uh, oh, follow water usage guidelines. We should be able to show up on people's lawns if we feel like it. So he's kind of part of this movement that tries to be a little bit more everyman, be a little more uh, personal liberty. But in practice, it turns out to be quite far right. It's my understanding there's also this issue brewing, you know, regarding water. I mean, and, you know, people have said this could be another sort of a Malher wildlife refuge or another sort of Bundy-style standoff. I mean, what's going on there? This is pretty dire. Basically, the Klamath River in Oregon and stretching down into Northern California, it is experiencing like crisis-level droughts. It's something that's happening all over the country, something that's going to keep happening in the climate emergency. But this is a river that is so critical for um, fishers upstream, for farmers in the middle, for fishers downstream, and everybody is getting shafted right now. Uh, there's, There's no winners in this. But basically what the government is saying is like, hey, guys, we know this sucks. Like, There is no water. We just got to conserve it. We got to have a little water left over. And these uh, some types associated with Bundy and with his people's rights movement are saying, uh, actually, no, open the river head gates right now um, because we have a whole bunch of people camped out at the river head gates and we hate for something to happen. Uh, So that's (laughs) that's pretty darn dire. So so by something, I mean, they mean like they're going to like seize control of the river? Yeah, that's the threat that's happening right now. And there's precedent for this, too. There was a 2001 similar standoff that uh, only only died down because 9-11 happened and uh, suddenly all uh, all national security threats were dialed up to, you know, 15. But that is the implicit threat that they are going to force open the river headgates or that they are going to, you know, reroute water via some jury-rigged pipe system. That's something that irrigators are really worried about right now, and there isn't an immediate resolution in sight. Okay, this sounds like a god-awful 80s movie, but Kelly, thank you for everything that you've uh, been doing on this in terms of your coverage. Please keep on it and come back anytime to uh, let us know where your reporting takes you. And I say that even as someone who still feels a little bit embittered that during this interview, you didn't know that there was a black and white Scarface. Oh, right. I'm, I'm adding that to the uh, the next Netflix queue of prestige movies that I don't actually watch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, guys. Watch the movie Great. and then we'll have you back. Thank you, Kelly. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. On this week's episode, we welcome Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent for The Week magazine and co-host of the Left Anchor podcast. Ryan's work has previously appeared in The New Republic, The Washington Post, and The Washington Monthly, among others. In his time at The Week, though, Ryan has emerged as one of our absolute favorite political columnists, cutting through the horseshit in major national news stories from a decidedly left-wing perspective with a sharp eye toward historical materialism and economic reality. Back in November, he wrote what I highly recommend to our listeners as one of the very best columns of the COVID pandemic era, titled, America's Narrow Idea of Freedom is Literally Killing Us. Which country is more free during the pandemic, the United States or Vietnam? You can follow Ryan at Ryan L. Cooper on Twitter.com, and his new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That?, is due out in September. Ryan. Welcome to Fever Dreams. Thanks for having me. Just to kick things off, uh, one of the main reasons I want to have you on now is because last week, our listeners probably caught wind of a new Inspector General report that was released that right-wing commentators and pro-Trump partisans immediately, shall we say, pounced on to hold up as a vindication of their favorite president, Donald J. Trump. The headline that amounted from this report. A lot of it came out to Inspector General says that Donald Trump's photo op was not the reason that Lafayette Park was cleared violently with tear gas during that summer in 2020. Yeah. So this was a very odd report. You know, it was it was done by the Inspector General of the U.S. Park Police. And, you know, it was, you know, trying to investigate the what happened during, on that day. And the argument that they that they make is that they had planned to clear this park, you know, a couple of days before so that they could install some uh, security fencing. You know, they said that some people had gotten over their, their previous like lower fence and they had gotten up close to the White House fence or something like that. And so they, they wanted to add more security. OK, fair enough. But then on the day of, the report says that William Barr, the attorney general of the United States, went up to like the the sort of uh, situational commander of the U.S. Park Police and asked if all the protesters are still going to be there whenever uh, Trump made his visit to the plaza. And the commander said, quote, "Uh, are you freaking kidding me? And hung his head. And so... 
Then, the report says, the violence against the protesters actually was started by the Secret Service, who, contrary to the Park Police's plan, you know, went out and started shooting pepper spray at the at the protesters about 10 minutes before the major clearance happened. And so that's kind of a circumstantial case that maybe a bar had told the Secret Service to go and like crack some skulls, you know, so what was the deal with that? Why why were the Secret Service jumping the gun? They would not explain to the uh, Inspector General why they did that. And the inspector general and his staff says, uh, says, quote, we did not seek to interview Attorney General William Barr, White House personnel, Federal Bureau of Prisons officers, MPD personnel or Secret Service personnel. So the it was not a report into what happened. Like you're leaving out seven tenths of the main characters of the entire proceedings. And to characterize it as some sort of vindication of Trump is just completely ridiculous. Essentially, the report can be summarized, at least in my mind, as the park police are once again declaring, we did nothing wrong. Please allow us to wash our hands of something that we all saw at the time as if not some sort of minor atrocity, a gigantic PR fuck up. Yeah, it wasn't our fault trying to exculpate themselves and maybe kind of quietly exculpate Trump to some degree. But, you know, even characterizing this as an investigation into, like, why things happened is just flagrantly dishonest. And, you know, I sort of understand the way these headlines are produced. You know, they get the report. It's like, we got to write a thing on this, you know, report, blah, blah, blah. Here's what they say it said. And then in a lot of them, you know, there's a pretty good article in the Washington Post, aside from the headline on this, that, you know, like dug into it and was like, hang on, this is a pretty sneaky, you know, sort of implication you're making here. It very much struck me as a cynical public relations exercise as somebody who knew that if they put this thing out and framed it in the way that they did, that it would produce the requisite media coverage they were asking for. And like almost nobody would look into it more closely than that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, one example of the fact that they clearly were up to no good is that they shot tear gas at people. I mean, like <laughs> this, this whole this whole idea of like, oh, we were just trying to put the fence up. I mean, it'd be like at like Kent State, they're like, well, we had to mow the lawn, we had to move the people out immediately. <laughs> like, just this idea of like, like normally, even in like heightened protest situations. There's like warnings and it's like, okay, you guys got to move and kind of like maybe some cops shoving people, something like that. But this kind of like, well, we had to put the fence up immediately. And so they had to, we just had to get them out there. I mean, it, it you know, I'm glad you looked into this, Ryan, because I mean, this thing just on its face seemed so bogus. And, uh, and, and yet I think a lot of people ran with it. Yeah, they say in the report over and over again that we decided, you know, we weren't going to wait until the curfew, which was at seven, uh, I believe, you know, only about like a little more than half an hour after they actually did clear the park and would have been, you would think it's like, do we need to get it? Is this like, you know, 40 minutes that important? You know, you could just wait and tell people who already have an expectation that they're going to have to leave because that's what the police have said instead of what the experience that was filmed live and reported to after the fact by hundreds and hundreds of people that they were just sitting there. And all of a sudden, with no warning that they could hear, they, you know, people charged in and just started beating the crap out of of people and, you know, smashing them with with sticks and spraying tear gas and pepper spray. But, you know, it was like, <laughs> oh, a technicality. Also, this quote unquote exonerating report literally says 
that Attorney General Bill Barr came out to ask, so Donald Trump's coming out. Is this, is this going to be a problem while he's here? <laughs> yeah. And it is immaterial to me if there was a plan or not, which I think was their position about a year ago. They had already said something to this effect that we had planned a while ago to clear it, to do something else. Okay, let's take them at their word for a moment. To use a sort of minor analogy here, if you already plan to vacuum your floor and clean your floor, but suddenly your cat vomits on the floor, you are cleaning the carpet because of what your cat did. Things can change. This is a very specific analogy for you, Swim. Yes, yes, exactly. I <laughs> Like, obviously, at some point, circumstances changed, and something was done, at least in large part, for the purposes of something else. And the fact that there are all these MAGA hogs that want to seize onto this as another example of why the media was wrong and Donald Trump is once again right about everything is pathetic. There is no other word for it. <laughs> yeah. And to build on that point a little bit, you know, the park police, you know, committed this atrocity. And then once they had beaten everyone out of the park, then Trump walks across Lafayette Park to, you know, hold up a Bible and get his picture taken in front of this church, giving the impression, a very clear impression to anybody who was watching that that's why that had happened. You know, like they clear the park and then here he comes to do a little a little picture show. I believe someone asked him, was like, is that your Bible? And he said, it's a Bible. Whether or not that happened, you know, so that Trump could do the PR move, he turned it into a PR move immediately. The whole point was to try to get some media coverage, you know, whether among conservatives or otherwise, make him look like a big, strong, tough guy who beats up, you know, uh, uh, protesters, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and so on and so forth. Um, the only reason they're mad at the media is because the strategy didn't work. You know, it made him look like a just absolutely brutal, you know, uh, coward who who couldn't face the protesters in there and had his like goons go out and beat everybody up. And if, you know, if he had gotten the headlines like the newspaper in Turkmenistan or something that's like, wow, president lifts up this golden bar, they would be celebrating. It would be, yes, Mr. Trump, you showed those hippies. So the complaints, you know, it's like you're trying to work the refs here. Don't pull the wool over our eyes. Right. And uh, something else I, I want to talk to you about was a consistent theme in your writing for the past, shall we say, year or year and a half, as the virus has been destroying large chunks of the world and our <laughs> civilization in America as well. As I read in your intro, you wrote what I thought was a very poignant piece back in November about how, quote, America's narrow idea of freedom is literally killing us, end quote. That is the title of your piece in November, but correct me if I'm wrong, that has been a consistent theme of your writing for the past year and a half. Definitely. And probably before that, too. But I think the pandemic was is really a, just an excellent explanation. It's still holding today. You know, you, you look at the best thing Trump ever did was get a good supply of the vaccines. You know, he funded all of the various companies with Operation Warp Speed. We had sort of first bite at the apple with all the Pfizer and Moderna stuff. We had a huge supply before almost any other country. And we had a massive head start on the European Union. European Union was way behind the curve. You know, they, they were trying to cheap out on their, their doses. 
But since uh, the last like month or so, we had like a two to three month head start on the on the Europeans. They they've ca- almost caught up to us. You know, vaccination has has stalled out in a lot of southern states. It's almost totally stalled out. In Mississippi, I think thirty five percent of the population has even one shot. I think in Vermont, it's approaching eighty percent. And almost certainly within the next couple of weeks, all the rich European countries are going to pass us up. You know, I I didn't think I thought for once America was going to do good at something, which is basically just buy a big like (laughs) horde of stuff and give it away for free. But nope, people won't take it. They won't take the vaccine. And or, you know, like the societies in the South are too broken for people to be able to like get it. You know, that when we talk about this, we obviously have to be somewhat delicate in certain parts of the conversation because there's there, there are several tranches of people. There's some who are just completely brainwash uh, individuals in varying socioeconomic brackets who really do think that the vaccine is trying to kill you and somehow that can co- coexist in their head with Donald Trump is the greatest thing that God has ever created. There are other people who, and they've said this, this has been illustrated in various uh, news reports that they either don't have time to because they're working too much, they don't get know how to get it, or there's just a very terrible breakdown of communication and messaging apparatus to actually get these more economically encumbered individuals out to get these shots in their arms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you see all of those things in the South. You know, you have a very impoverished, very unequal place. People are worried they have no sick leave. So they're worried that if they get the side effects and they they have to take a day off work, they're going to lose their job. Or they don't believe, you know, there's all this messaging that the vaccine rather is, is free, which it is legally speaking, but they don't believe that that could possibly happen in the United States. And in fact, people have illegally charged for the vaccine, the the predatory providers who are they just, you know, ah, we're going to scam 60 bucks out of something, even though the department, you know, uh, of health and human services said we can't do it. So, yeah, it, it's like a, just a profound social breakdown. And I think uh, to the question you were asking, it's a illustrative of belief that like freedom is just license, the ability for me to do whatever I want. And I think the among conservatives, that's the most apparent recently with uh, in Texas. You know, Governor Abbott had this tweet that was like, I've signed legislation forcing businesses to prohibiting them from having any kind of mask mandate or vaccination record requirement for for people to be able to come in and awesome there's no reason why you'd ever need that (laughs) yeah and then and this you know being a triumph of freedom like forcing others to do what the conservatives want what the state has told you to do yeah, the exa- yeah, and he said it specifically. It's like with no, Texas is totally open with no regulations and requirements. And as a- Adam Sora pointed out at the time on Twitter, that like you just described regulation and a requirement. You know, <laughs> to hold the pandemic, the most fervent mobilization, the most violent and concentrated types of political mobilization around the pandemic specifically was to stop the government from doing anything about it, that like having a mask mandate or having, you know, various like social distancing requirements or like ventilation upgrade requirements or really anything at all, that was regarded as this horrible abridgment of freedom. And meanwhile, 
you look at a country like Vietnam, I believe they have had some outbreaks since then because of these new variants and they haven't gotten that vac- many vaccines yet, unfortunately. But for all of 2020, they had only, a f- uh, I think, less than 2,000 cases. And the way they did that is with super collectivist, band together, everybody follow the rules. And if you do it right, then you don't have to do any of these lockdown measures or anything like that. You can get rid of most of that stuff. And that, in fact, was the case in Vietnam. They had a couple of sharp lockdowns early and then in the summer of 2020. But then they successfully squelched transmission and uh, everybody could go back to normal, more or less. And uh, that was what uh, basically conservatives, through incompetence and their own bizarre definition of what freedom is, prevented from being even remotely considered, you know, in the United States. You know, I think that's a thing that you can see in basically all areas of American policy, that like it's more freedomer to not have Medicare for all so that anytime you get sick, you're at risk of bankruptcy and, you know, destitution. A sense that like, you know, this rugged individual ideology, you know, that like I'm the only real person and I don't depend on anyone else. And I'm, you know, going to live in a, a a bunker and be, you know, totally free from all. It's a kind of like a and, and post awesome memes about Ron DeSantis all day. <laughs> yeah, it's like a political psychosis almost. It's like an inability to perceive other people as human. It's like the fact is, and I actually get into this in my book, for a quick book plug, that like we are all collectively interdependent and we always have been. And that's like the, all of human history is like that. We all rely on others. You know, if we didn't have this vast collaborative machine, you know, shipping goods and services around the country and uh, you know, to maintaining all the stuff that we need for all of our daily activities, like society would collapse and everyone would die in a matter of weeks. I think that it would be useful to try to develop a, a new conception of freedom that can mobilize the same kind of intense passion, you know, that those like freedom is such a, a mobilizing force in American history for good and ill, that that is a, around like a realistic conception of how, you know, my Freedom is tied up with your freedom. And sometimes we have to coordinate with each other to stamp out, for example, pandemic disease, you know, and that if we do that, we can all live lives much less, much more free of constraint and death and un- various other unpleasantness. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think, Ryan, that's a great way of conceptualizing it. I was struck by, I was at an anti-masking event in Oklahoma a few months back, and a guy got in a car accident, and, you know, he's very proud that he had refused the EMT's order to put a mask on while they treated him in the ambulance, and then uh. was very pleased that they treated him anyway. I mean, this guy was sort of a celebrity at the event. He gave a speech, and they were like, isn't that great that you refused to put a mask on, you know, all this stuff. More recently, you wrote an article about, you know, nationally, we're seeing Republicans sort of crack down on voting across the country with this idea that Republicans, uh, you know, are kind of going for this, uh, you know, this minority control of government. Um, But you point out that it's actually like not impossible for a Republican to get elected in a Democratic constituency, as we see in some states like Maryland. Uh, You know, walk me through that. I I thought that was an interesting insight on your part. If you're on the left, you know, like me, you look at the success of somebody like Larry Hogan in Maryland, one of the most liberal states in the country. And this guy has been consistently high 60s up to high 70s approval rating. Crushed the Bernie-style 
Democrat yeah. who challenged yeah. him. Yeah, Ben Jealous. Night. Absolutely rinsed him. Yep. His approval rating is higher among Democrats in Maryland than it is among Republicans. And this is a guy who, you know, is a sort of like, he's not a complete lunatic like Trump, but he's corrupt in almost the same way as Trump is. The first thing he did when he came to came to power was cancel this transit project, the Purple Line, I think it was called, that had been in the works for like over a decade. Longtime D.C. residents and D.C. residents will know the Purple Line unicorn. Yeah, they'd been working on it for years and years and years. I mean, aligning all these stakeholders. The state of Maryland had already bought up some land. You know, I mean, this is a thing that was that, that had been people, thousands and thousands of people had been working on this. He just canceled the entire thing, took the money, put it into highway projects that are near a bunch of land that he owns personally, and made himself probably millions and millions of dollars. Do liberal Democrats care about that? No, they do not. There's a similar story uh, in Massachusetts, Charlie Baker. The one I don't know that much about is a guy in uh, Vermont. I forget his name. Uh, he won by the largest margin, but he seems like genuinely idiosyncratic. But, you know, the Vermont's a tiny state, you know, basically irrelevant in national politics uh, unless somebody manages to, 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 to break out, you know, not really representative. Um, but I think what that tends to demonstrate is that the suburban like liberals who make up, you know, who is sort of like Biden's margin of victory, you know, in the 2020 election are not really committed to substantive democratic priorities. They don't like Trump, you know, and they, for obvious reasons, the guy's very alarming. He's very improper. He's been credibly accused of rape uh, and dozens of cases of sexual assault. And I think it shows you if, if the Republican Party were to just, you know, moderate on the frenzied rhetoric and put up one of their popular governors against Biden in 2024, moderate their policy platform a little bit. I mean, more or less what they're doing already with antitrust and like some at least modest rhetorical concessions to like being against corporate ownership of of everything. Uh I think they could have a very serious challenge to, to Biden in 2024 and would 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 win eventually on that on that platform at some point. You know, there's there's always a thermostatic uh, character to elections. It's always the case that, you know, if the longer a party has been in power, the, the, the longer, the harder it is to keep a grip on power. You know, even the uh, New Deal Democrats lost Eisenhower eventually. And, you know, it's just a question of like, OK, how do we win? Now, like what's popular? What's unpopular? Who is our best person that we can put up and like, you know, run that. But instead, they just it's like double down on Trump. We're going to have more Trump and we're going to have more uh, lunatics just like Trump if he can't be uh, found available. And it's going to be running, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene in 2028. And uh, she's probably going to win. Well, on that remarkably uplifting note. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Come back anytime and keep doing the work you're doing. And for our listeners, it's morally incumbent upon you to follow him. <laughs> yeah. Ryan, where can uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ryan L. Cooper. I've got, uh, you know, articles on the week almost every day. My podcast is called Left Anchor. And also my, uh, you can pre-order my book, my pinned tweet. It's called, how are you going to pay for that? And I would much appreciate that. Thanks for having me on, guys. Of course, anytime. And also to our listeners, if you love Glenn Greenwald, if you love him, I highly encourage you do not follow Ryan L. Cooper on <laughs> Twitter.com. They really get into it a lot. 
and uh, Ryan oftentimes does a good job of pantsing Glenn. So if you love Glenn, don't don't follow Ryan. Okay. All right, Ryan. Thanks so much. And now we bring our listeners to our most beloved segment on the show, which we love to call Fresh Hell. <laughs> You've been exactly. a bad, bad boy, and now you're going to Fresh Hell. As Will Summer just sang, we now bring you to Fresh Hell, a segment in which we introduce the audience to a batshit thing that's happening in the real world that you may not believe is happening, but is indeed actually happening. Will, you are here to tell us the tale of the MAGA Artur who cast the one and only, and I know we mentioned him earlier in this show, James O'Keefe in Oklahoma. Please yes. tell me this is the uh, <laughs> musical Oklahoma. Yeah, it is actually. Yes. Um, okay. So James. Wait, O'Keefe, really? Yeah. Oh, no, I was I mean, just is, I was just okay. kidding around. <laughs> no, James O'Keefe's playing Curly. Okay, so here's the oh, deal. holy so, shit. So James O'Keefe, you may know him as the guy who dressed up as the pimp that one time. As the guy who does antics, you know, for for Donald Trump and, uh, you know, the the Trump world uh, set. He has a background in theater. And so, and, you know, often people say that's sort of the Rosetta Stone for understanding James O'Keefe's character. It is. Is that he's sort of a frustrated theater kid. He's a failed theater kid. I was greeted a couple weeks ago. You know, of course, I'm on the Project Veritas mailing list. And whether you want to or or don't want to, you're never getting off of it. And normally, you know, it's like we got another Facebook whistleblower or whatever. But this one was James O'Keefe cast as Curly in Oklahoma. And I thought, what? And so James O'Keefe, yes, will be playing the role of Curly in the musical Oklahoma. I guess Curly's the main guy. And so I thought, now, what kind of guy cast James O'Keefe as the lead in his musical? And then I fell down this hole about a gentleman named Brian Cloudus, who's this kind of like, he's this musical theater director. And more recently, he was, I believe roughly a year ago, he was sort of canceled in the Southern theater scene for having like what people described as very abusive and dangerous working environments on his musicals. And then he became kind of a MAGA guy out of that. But I mean, this guy puts on some of the craziest productions. And, you know, if you don't mind, Swin, I'd like to share some uh, examples of this. I would not only not mind, I would actively encourage. Please do, mister. Like, you know, in Rushmore, when they do the movie Rushmore, they do these like incredibly elaborate musicals. Of course. Who could forget? I mean, this is like that come to life. Okay. So this guy. (laughs) So one of the things he got in trouble with. And and so this kind of puts you in the mind of a guy who might cast James O'Keefe in a musical. So he had this. He did in 2018. He did this staging of Titanic where they staged it over what, what looks like a real river. And then the cast is like dunked in and out of the river. So this one gentleman, the, I, I think the lead, uh, he, the water was infected. <laughs> and so... Wait, wait, it was what? The water has, had bacteria in it. So bacteria in the water, and I'm quoting here from an article by artsatl.org that was flagged by the New York Times as Sopan Deb. Um, bacteria in the water caused his mos- mosquito-bitten leg to swell and eventually a tendon burst. Oh, This guy was hospitalized for like a week because of this zany... You know, this really death-defying Titanic. In another, in a production of The Little Mermaid, this person fell off a zip line, so they fell like eight feet. And that's The Little Mermaid. That's not like a stunts-heavy show. Right, it's not like the Spider-Man musical. (laughs) Right. This is The Little Fucking Mermaid, and it's at the, uh, where is he doing this? Like, this isn't Broadway. What theater? No, no, this is kind of just in, in I think, like, regional theater. Okay, 
Okay, th- th- this makes it. Oh, they gotta make a movie about this guy. I'm sorry. Like, I. I mean, there's something that I don't know what it is, but just like really insane productions of musicals, I, and, and particularly with you have this angle that this guy's like this like huge Trump fan who's putting on these like grandiose musicals where people are like, you know, getting injured and stuff. I mean, there's just something very uh, cinematic about it. This guy thinks he's D.W. Griffith. He thinks that he really does to his core. And uh, what you're reading to me on paper, I, I mean, I would love to see footage of it or see it in person because, okay, first of all, this guy's name is pronounced Brian Cloudis, right? So Mr. Cloudis, I bet if I actually saw a production, it would be somewhat underwhelming. On paper, this guy sounds like a real epic theater guy who, despite risk to himself and his faithful cast and crew, is willing to put the art and his vision above the possible bodily and physical harm. I'm not saying that is necessarily the best way to go about these things, but at least in some sort of, I don't know, even Dickensian well, way. Well, you know, I should say, I should say, Swin, he seems to have done some other, like, very bad stuff. Okay, like what? Like what? Well, like, you know, cast were saying he was encouraging cast members to use the N-word more than was in the script. I'm not endorsing that. <laughs> Let's back this up. <laughs> I obviously don't yeah, I mean, know enough funny. about this you, guy. You ever have those moments? You ever have those moments where it's like someone, so, you, so, like you'll be like, I didn't think that guy was so bad, and someone's like, Oh, you, you don't think it was bad that he did this? And it was like, Well, I didn't, I didn't know about that. <laughs> no, but well, well, I guess what I'm saying is, on paper, it sounds like you would write a really. Dark, I know we reference the Coen Brothers a lot on this show, but he does sound like this interesting, if not just completely laughable and morally denounceable Coen Brothers character. But in the real world, I bet if you show me footage of this guy's art, it would look like a children's theater production where someone just happened to get maimed. <laughs> well, I mean, it's very ambitious. They paid 30 grand to get a, a real live helicopter for a production of Miss Saigon. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty good. Um, but, but you know, I, I think the larger political import for us here is, is that this guy appears to have been very criticized in the regional theater scene for his, uh, you know, unsafe work environments that people would, you know, allegedly. And then he just makes this hard pivot to being a magnet. Of course. And so, of course. you know, he casts James O'Keefe. He he posed for a picture with the Q shaman, <coughs> uh, which became a little awkward uh, after January 6th. So, you know, this is kind of a classic arc, uh, particularly in the arts, is when, you know, a ca- guy kind of gets run out of out of whatever his artistic industry is and then becomes a, uh, a big right wing guy. When does the James O'Keefe thing premiere? I believe later this year. And it's. Are you going? Gosh, I mean, you know, the, the, the prospects of seeing James O'Keefe sing, sing, uh, you know, like a like a cowboy, uh, you know, is certainly enticing to me. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.